Welcome to the Global Data Pod Research Wrap. I'm Nora Santivani, and joining me today is Katie Marney from the Emerging Markets Economics team. Hi, Katie. How are you doing? Hi, Nora. Good. How are you? It's good to be back. Yes, good. Good to have you on. So we recently released our Year Ahead Outlook uh, publications, and uh, accompanying those outlooks, we did a couple of uh, sort of deep dive analyses looking into the health of yeah, macroeconomic fundamentals. And uh, you've looked in a bit more detail on EM capital flows and updated uh, our views for the coming year. Now, uh, we want to dig a bit deeper into these reports. Uh, and as we look back on 2023, uh, I would say the resilience in the major EM economies uh, has been evident, uh, both in growth and capital flows holding up uh, surprisingly well, uh, despite the quite volatile um, US financial conditions and a period of uh, quite significant tightening. If you look at EM growth, we're on track uh, for uh, just over 4% uh, this year. And if you take China out of it, then just over 3%. So easily surpassing our expectations from the start of the year. Um, and in our base case, uh, we see this resilience continuing to hold in coming quarters with EM once again delivering trend-like growth. And that comes ag against a backdrop where we do expect meaningful slowdown in, uh, in DM growth. So if we're right, then this would be a pretty uh, major uh, achievement for EM. And you know, we've been arguing that this is at least in part a testimony to resilience in EM private sector balance sheets, but also policymakers having a very prudent uh, approach. Uh, both monetary and fiscal policy management were, were quite restrained and, and prudent. Now, Katie, before we uh, turn to the outlook, uh, why don't we, we start with uh, what we're seeing in the more high frequency space on, on capital flows and how does this sort of picture of resilience that I've just described, how does that translate into what you're seeing on the ground in, in capital flows? You've just published your latest uh, monthly capital flows monitor. Why don't you talk us through that? Thanks, Nora. So, you know, what's what's been surprising is that EM capital flows have actually had a relatively good year, especially when you consider the magnitude of the monetary tightening and just sort of the, the overhang of uh, growth concerns that we've had given that tightening. But uh, so EM investment flows will be lower by about a quarter this year compared to last year. But that has been mainly due to FDI. So again, just longer term investments uh, into you know, factories and these things uh, and other types of lending. So like bank lending and, the, and these things. But uh, portfolio flows, which is sort of our backyard, uh, i.e. fixed income and equity flows have actually had a pretty good year. They're, they're up uh, compared to last year. So in that in that sense, you know, again, it's 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 been it's been pretty good, all things considered. Uh, you know, we did have relatively large outflows in the third quarter uh, mm -hmm. when Treasury rates were were heading towards five percent, uh, but those have been all made up this this quarter um, in the fourth quarter. Now that again things have repriced down and the dollars weaker and and so on. So again, all in. I mean, I think considering the headwinds that we were facing and considering that you know last year. EM did come under more pressure on the flow side. Uh, it's been a it's been a pretty good year. Yeah. So if if you look a bit kind of from a historical perspective, how how do the size of capital inflows into EM compare to say the last Fed hiking cycle back in twenty eighteen nineteen, 
and generally, how do you feel U.S. financial conditions have been um, impacting EM capital flows? Obviously, you mentioned there have been this period of significant tightening in the third quarter. Then quite a lot of that got taken out recently, right? So yeah. if you could just, just talk us through from a historical perspective, um, is this surprising? Is it is it very different from what we saw in, in past um, tightening cycles? And what's your sense? Yeah, so no, this is a good question. And I mean, just to to bring the conclusion up front, I mean, it has been surprising. So as I said, portfolio flows are up compared to last year. Um, so the main reason that we're going to see that, that you know, basically, uh, again, inflows dropping by a quarter has mainly been from FDI. Um, and that's just from higher funding rates. I mean, it's, you know, it costs more to do an M&A deal. It costs more to, to borrow debt, um, to do an acquisition. Um, and so, you know, and those have been, FDI has been in secular decline basically since the Fed hiking cycle started. Uh, so at portfolio flows can be susceptible to swings, as I said, but in net terms, um, flows are up. And, and I was to say, I think that's mainly just because uh, EM growth has surprised the upside, um, proving more resilient this year. The dollar is weaker compared to last year. And then, you know, U.S. rates have stabilized. Uh, so the, the surprising finding is that, um, that investment flows to EM, including EM debt and equity, are actually tracking in line with 2018-19, which was the last mm. Fed hiking cycle. Um, and that's surprising because, you know, Fed rates now are, Fed, fund rate, Fed funds rate is 300 basis points higher from where it mm. peaked in that cycle. Uh, rate differentials between EM and DM are much, you know, are wider this time. Yeah. Uh, so, and on the dollar is sort of more or less in line. So, so the main difference uh, I, you know, I could point to is just the resilience of EM growth compared to that period. We're just, we're seeing a wider growth differential uh, between EM and DM compared to that cycle. Um, but as I say, I mean, I, you know, if you had said to me at the beginning of the year that we would be having, you know, portfolio flows, uh, you know, showing this resilience, again, I think given, given the, the way that, you know, we often think about it, we, again, we would be, we would be surprised. Yeah. Um, so from your side, I mean, you've written about the the macro risks and noted that, you know, risks seem contained. Um, what have been what are the most important distinctions compared to the pre taper tantrum period where, you know, EM, EM did come under more stress, particularly when financial conditions tightened so uh, dramatically during the, the taper tantrum? Yeah, I mean, as as you've noted, um, EM has been very resilient um, to um, these gyrations in U.S. financial conditions, and part of that reflects uh, relatively strong uh, macro fundamentals. The way in which we uh, like to think about EM macro fundamentals is, is we like to assess them in a more systematic uh, framework, and we've relied on this uh, sort of score scorecard type framework called the macro risk score, where we look at the health of macro fundamentals across seven main buckets, uh, seven main indicators, and that includes everything from inflation, um, public debt, external debt, FX reserves, current account fiscal deficits, and also political and geopolitical risks. And we, and we look at these vulnerabilities relative to historical averages, and that kind of allows us to benchmark um, both countries and EM as a whole to previous uh, cycles. And so we capture the earlier EM crisis periods over the past two decades. Now, what we see um, in the EM macro risk score in the latest scores is a reduction in EM macro risks overall over the past year. And a lot of that has been due to a drop in inflation, 
uh, the main areas of uh, concern, I would say, are fiscal and government debt vulnerabilities. Those remain quite elevated uh, relative to historical norms and certainly relative to uh, the sort of taper tantrum uh, period. At the same time, we've seen improvements in the areas of uh, foreign currency and external debt exposure. So those exposures have come down quite significantly. And this comes back to your earlier point on you know, the, the, the change in the composition of flows, which we'll talk about a bit more about um, in a minute. But generally, there's an absence of overhang of foreign portfolio flows uh, relative to sort of a decade ago. We can also see a lack of domestic overheating pressures. There's no excess credit growth that had, uh, for example, dominated the pre-GFC period. Things like credit impulse, negative credit growth is uh, still positive, but it's been slowing down in recent quarters. Um, I would say the picture on external balances is a little bit more mixed. So overall, no big change in current accounts on average relative to the taper tantrum. But an important distinction is that uh, in contrast to 2013, it's mainly the current account surplus countries and not the current account deficit countries that have seen uh, deteriorations uh, in, in recent years. So for example, the countries that we had uh, referred to as the fragile five, you know, Brazil, South Africa, India, Turkey, Indonesia, these countries are on average running current account deficits that are around half of what they were uh, back in 2013. And at the same time, it's really the EM Asian current account surplus countries, which have seen some uh, reductions in their surpluses. So, you know, all in all, uh, you know, we have this framework for assessing overall macro vulnerabilities and what they're telling us is EMs are in pretty good shape all in all compared to uh, compared to a decade ago on many of these metrics. Now, you know, in the same way, um, you know, these fundamentals have improved in some areas. Katie, you've been arguing that, you know, the taper tantrum was in many ways a kind of watershed moment for EM, right, which spurred a number of important changes in the composition of balance of payments, uh, financing flows, uh, and funding sources. Can you describe what these uh, changes have been and how have these been contributing to a bit more, you know, resilience in, in EM? Yeah, so I mean, you know, the, the, the changes that you, that you highlighted on the fundamental side, you know, effectively, we've, we have seen play out when it comes to the composition of capital flows and how EMs are funding themselves. So, uh, EM capital flows in net and in gross terms. So again, just basically the inflows and then, um, you know, inflows minus the outflows are lower. Um, and, um, you know, the perception often is that the taper tantrum was sort of this watershed where after which, you know, EM kind of lost its, lost its, lost its shine. Uh, but, uh, you know, and so there is, there are signs that portfolio allocations to EM are lower from that, from since then, right? But in line with this view of sort of improved fundamentals from that time, compared to that time, you know, funding needs are generally lower. Um, so EM needs fewer capital flows. Uh, why? Well, again, you know, as you said, EM policymakers have tightened fiscal and monetary, or fiscal and credit policy. Um, they've deep, deepened local markets. They've reduced their dependence on external debt. Um, so you're, you know, you're seeing less dependence on portfolio flows compared to those pre-taper tantrum years. Um, but at the same time, you are seeing a more dependence on FDI, which in general is a more stable source of funding. Uh, we have seen FDI falling, and, we'll, and we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, but this is one reason why we haven't been as worried about EM having a sort of taper tantrum style shock, given the scale of, of financial tightening that we've seen over the last you know, almost two years. 
so again, um, you know, even when even in the third quarter when we had outflows, um, they were relatively contained compared to what we would have feared in the past. Um, and again, as I said, we made up entirely uh, those those outflows in the fourth quarter. So and again, EM is is on pretty good footing all all in all. So I mean, you know, thinking thinking ahead, Nora, you know, we we've been talking a lot about twenty twenty three, but really. You know, how does as we head into another year potentially of higher rates or or rates where EM is, you know, having to learn to survive with, you know, with with higher treasury rates, uh, even if they fall, you know, how do you see macro risks evolving next year? Um, are there any particular areas of concern? Yeah. So as I mentioned at, at the beginning, 2024, we think will be another year of EM resilience, at least from the growth perspective, uh, we see growth pretty steady uh, through next year. And macro risks generally should continue to moderate. Now, much of that decline will continue to come from falling inflation, which um, you know hasn't fully normalized just yet. So we have another you know, 100 basis points uh, or so decline in inflation expected over the coming year. And that really would bring inflation within central bank comfort zones for most emerging market economies. And, you know, we've noted that this is an important distinction relative to DM, just partly because EMs have less ambitious inflation targets. So 3% inflation is a little bit easier for them to achieve. And it also means that um, they are able to then ease policy. Now, current account def deficits, as I mentioned, are generally modest, but they are becoming harder to fund with this uh, worsening in the external environment, you know, higher US rates and so on. Um, it's nonetheless encouraging that when we look at our forecast for current account deficits, uh, none of the major EMs, apart from Chile, Colombia, and, and Romania, if you take EU funds out of it, none of them are running, are expected to run a current account deficit of over 3% of GDP. And that's typically seen as a key vulnerability marker. So broadly speaking, current account deficits will stay contained. Uh, we probably won't have a lot of time to go into the country level detail, but I'll just say that the deteriorations in macro risk that we're expecting over the coming year are relatively modest and they're confined to a handful of countries, Mexico, South Africa, Thailand, Chile, are expected to deteriorate a little bit. And at the same time, we're expecting to see a big improvement in Turkey's uh, macro fundamentals. Fiscal deficits are seen widening only materially in Mexico, uh, but fiscal deficits generally will remain significantly wider than historical norms, uh, as I mentioned, and government debt too will stay elevated, although broadly stable. Now, just coming back to the theme of growth re resilience, you know, as you mentioned, I think delivering growth on, on or around trend growth for EM of about 3% outside of China, that would be a pretty major achievement for EM, right? In light of this sort of less friendly external circumstances, higher US rates, bond yields, a stronger dollar, weaker DM growth in particular. And a key difference we've been highlighting relative to DM is that in EM, much of the pass through from the earlier hiking cycles to, for example, debt service costs has mostly already completed. So much of that sort of rise in debt service burdens is already behind us, right? And there's various reasons for that, partly because more of the private sector credit is floating rate and shorter maturity. But the point is that that drag is going to be fading and is already starting to fade, whereas in DM it's still to come. So, you know, that's part of the reason why we have this, um, I suppose, improvement in EMDM growth differentials. And 
that's probably a good segue uh, back to um, back to you, Katie. Uh, when we think about our sort of top-down framework for forecasting capital flows, I know we've been highlighting that EMDM growth differentials are a, a very critical driver. So with this in mind, what should we expect for 2024 capital flows in EM? Yeah, so I, I, our top-down framework um, uses growth differentials, so EMDM growth differentials and dollar moves. So we've tested this framework uh, over essentially the last decade, um, and it continues to hold outside of the you know pandemic period, which we could say was definitely a unique, um, you know, unique period in the economic cycle. So overall, for this for next year, we have um, a relatively stable EMDM growth differential. Um, it's ticking up. Uh, to from 1.8 to 2 percent. Uh, why? Because both would slow at comparable rates, but EM would again hold up pretty well. Uh, the dollar or general uh, financial conditions will be the key variable to watch, given given where growth differentials would be. So you know what the way what we've been saying is that if U.S. can pull off a soft landing, uh, then EM is potentially set up to have actually a pretty good year, given that those macro risks which you've been mentioning have you know will be contained. And so you know if again if we have the dollar coming off, if we have rates coming off, then again EM should see a lift, um, given given that we are you know we're going from a period of resilience to potentially going into one of strength. Uh, in in the case of a hard landing, however, you know, EM capital flows would be tested, um, given, given that, again, sort of the more stable uh, flows that I mentioned, the FDI, you know, FDI has been falling, and, you know, portfolio has been the main lift this year, but again, those would probably come under pressure if we did see a hard landing. Uh, but again, you know, given contained fundamentals and less dependence on that portfolio funding as a, as an overall source of, um, you know, funding, given you know, given given the change in fundamentals over the last ten years, again we think that uh, that you know the blow won't be as dramatic as mm. what we would have feared again, um, say ten years ago. So again, I think um, again I think in this case, given you know given what you've been saying about growth and given you know where EM fundamentals will probably be next year, it's really about how the global scenario shakes out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I mean, one area I wanted to myself understand a little bit better and maybe probe you on is how do interest rates dm interest rates or you know u.s treasury yields or u.s rates in in general how, how do those affect dm capital flows because i know we've been emphasizing that it's really the growth differential and the dollar that tends to drive more uh, the changes in dm capital flows but when you've done your analysis, I think you found that actually treasury rates, they do matter for EM capital flows. And I was I was a little bit surprised by, by that result. So if you don't mind just going a little bit more into um, the reasons behind that finding. Yeah. And also if, if related to that, if you could talk about interest rate differentials as well, because this is an area where um, you know, we've been highlighting that some of the countries in EM that have seen the the, the strongest BOP pressures uh, during the third quarter when uh, U.S. Uh, rates were rising was EM Asia, right, where rate differentials against the U.S. are at multi-decade lows and have, have turned negative. And it's really these countries that have seen the most significant pressure. So um, if you could speak to that as well. Yeah, sure. So no, this is this is a this is a, a kind of an age old debate that we have, um, including in our in our own team, right? What does it matter? Does EM's relative policy 
stance to DM matter more or does just does DMs or do DMs rates matter more? So again, we, we've looked at this and, and as I said, um, particularly on the rate differential side, we've tested this you know, multiple times and it continues to come up as being insignificant. Um, and you know, one reason for that could just be that, again, the, the kind of the growth differential uh, does a sufficient job in capturing um, you know, again, the, the, the rates, the rate story. Uh, so, you know, we looked at, so then we said, well, what about, um, looking at just, you know, DM rates? Uh, so again, I think, you know, what we, the bottom line that we found was that treasury rates can matter for, uh, portfolio flows. So again, debt and equity and then FDI. So on the, on the portfolio flow side, I mean, that's not too surprising, just given again, portfolio allocations, potentially, you know, EM borrowers deciding that they prefer to fund themselves locally versus uh, using, using, uh, you know, dollar, dollar funding. Uh, but on the, on the FDI side, it's more surprising because we tend to think of FDI as sort of this, um, you know, this longer term investment that depends on structural variables. Um, and growth and so on. And of course, you know, again, like it, on the growth side, we do find that again, it does matter, but what we also found was that FDI can matter. And, and, and why is that? Well, again, part of that is just that FDI is, um, you know, part of FDI is literally just M&A, right? So, you know, if it costs, if you're, if you're, if your you know, cost of borrowing is, is higher then again, the valuation will change um, potentially again, your the cost of you, you know, borrowing debt in order to do that acquisition would be higher. And so um, that has, that has been a, you know, that, uh, you know, that would, that would explain, might explain why um, treasury rates would matter for, um, for FDI. And indeed what we have seen is that FDI has been, uh, has been drawing, falling pretty much precipitously since, uh, since the Fed started hiking. Uh, and so, Again, it's um, you know there does seem to be there does seem to be some proof there, um, and we are seeing it. You know, we are we have seen it in China, we've seen it in India, we've seen it in in many places where FDI is falling to multi-decade lows. Um, so, uh, you know, again, I think that's you know that's the angle. I mean, what does it mean for next year? Well, we in our forecasts in our house forecast we have the Fed cutting 100 basis points, um, and so you know if that plays out, uh, we could see a lift. In, in FDI and in portfolio. Um, I would expect to see portfolio responding first just because that tends to be more, you know, that tends to be a little bit more reactive. Um, but, you know, potentially we could be talking about sort of a bottoming in this FDI cycle um, in the middle of next year and then starting to see lift. Uh, so, you know, that's that's the angle really that we, we look at. Um, and, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess thinking about scenarios for next year. So as I said, you know, really, uh, we're we're really talking about potentially a soft landing, which would be helpful for EM, mm -hmm. uh, or a hard landing that could test us. Um, how do you think the how do you think the EM policy response would, you know, could evolve given the various global scenarios for next year, Nora? Yeah. So as you say, I I, I agree with you completely. I think the external environment will matter. Quite a bit. I mean, we've seen that tested this year as well, right? We had a period of tighter uh, U.S. financial conditions in the third quarter, and that did short circuit a little bit some of EM's dovish pivot, right? And then more recently, now that global financial conditions have eased again, uh, and inflation pressures have continued to moderate, a number of EM central banks are once again turning less hawkish and um, you know, continuing uh, easing cycle. So it's kind of rekindled the EM easing bit, if you like. 
Um, looking into next year, uh, we do think that countries with high real rates or high buffers generally will be the ones driving EM easing. So that's LATAM, that's the, some of the Central Eastern European countries. As we move through 2024, we are likely to see that easing cycle broaden out, um, especially in the second half of next year when uh, the Fed and other DM central banks uh, start cutting as well. But broadly speaking, I would expect rate cuts in EM to remain quite measured. So central banks are going to have to continue to balance high domestic real rates against a still very uncertain global environment, at least through the beginning of next year. We're going to be in this period of what we've referred to as, as observational equivalence, right? So it, it's going to take some time for the data to decisively signal which way the U.S. road ahead is going to fork. And I don't think EM central banks will preempt that outcome. Instead, they're going to wait. They're going to wait to see it in the data. So I think those who have started easing LATAM, CE3, I think they can continue to keep cutting, but at a quite cautious pace. Those who haven't started cutting, I think, are going to remain on hold through this early um, 2024 period. And as I mentioned, as we go through 24, we could see some other countries being brought into the easing mix, India, South Africa, Russia, and then EM Asia more in the second half of the year. If um, we get the soft landing uh, from the US, then you know, EM's easing can certainly accelerate and we, we could see terminal rates go lower as well. Um, you know, in that scenario, I think EM Asia in particular could have more material space to cut rates because, you know, so far it hasn't really uh, been able to respond to the significant slack and, and uh, low inflation they already have uh, due to concerns about their uh, low uh, rate buffers. So I think I think that's the region that could probably benefit the most relative to kind of what's priced in or what the expectations are right now. Remember, much of EM Asia already has inflation back at target. Now, at the same time, if global financial conditions uh, turn more uh, adverse and we get maybe this boil the frog uh, scenario, which we you know still put a reasonably high probability on, um, then certainly the economies uh, that are not adequately compensating for the macro risks that they have um, could be especially vulnerable. And some of the EM Asian countries, I think, would fall in that category. So that region generally, I think, tends to be a little bit more highly geared um, to what's, what, what's going to happen in the U.S. And, you know, some of them could even be forced to tighten policies uh, in that scenario or continue to use some of their FX reserves to uh, defend against currency uh, weakening. I think LATAM generally does well because they have ample rate cushions. So um, you know, even in that scenario, they could still maintain an easing bias. So a fair bit of differentiation here. But yes, I, I think the external environment will matter. Um, but Katie, as you say, uh, there's a path to strength here for EM, but fear not otherwise, right? So even in, in the sort of worst case scenarios, EM is potentially not going to do as 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 poorly as it had done during earlier historical risk off episodes. Does that sound a fair assessment to you? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, again, it it's I think we've all been surprised by EM's resilience over the last three years. I think when we wrote our outlook three years ago, we said this is EM's resiliency test. Yeah. And and the resiliency test was also in 2020. Two and then 2023 and so 2024 is another resiliency test and so far EM is actually 
you know, pass those resiliency tests with with good marks, right? So yeah. uh, I think that um, you know, there's there's more to it than than meets the eye. Well, thank you so much, Nora. I, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Katie. So we'll we'll leave it there. Uh, and thank you for everybody for listening to the Global Data Pod Research Wrap. And we hope to continue the conversation on the next episode. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on December 6, 2023.